Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by the name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat and kept down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews.
It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden from me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God.
we've heard this familiar story. And now, how do we respond? Good Friday, more than any other time of the year, brings forward into our minds this image of the crucifixion. We see his suffering and his pain. We're brought close to the violence that occurred on that day. And so what are we to do? What are we supposed to do with the images of Jesus' suffering? Do we shake our heads? Do we think of the, the human tragedy of it all? How, how humans could treat another person and, and do such horrible things to someone who's, who's relatively um, innocent in all of his ways. To someone who talks about peace and love and yet is met with hatred and torture. Should we feel pity? Perhaps we should despise those who did these things. We should despise Pilate and the Jewish leaders and the Romans and even the disciples, hating them for what they've done. You know, if we have these feelings, then I think we need to consider two points points that we've heard from the Gospels for the readings we've just had. First, we need to see that those putting Jesus on the cross, those crucifying him, they're not demons. They weren't exceptionally more wicked than we are. When we really look at them and their motives I think what we'll see is something far all too familiar. We start to see our face there. Think about it. What drove them to condemn Jesus? What drove them to act in this this way of violence, to bring him to trial, to want him just out of their lives and out of their presence? Is it not their fear? Their fear of someone challenging them and upsetting their their status quo. They think of Pilate and his his desire to control the mob that that could threaten his very status. You think of the crowd's judgmentalism on a man who seemed to be letting them down. A man who, who talked a big game but seemed to also present a weakness and a failing that they despised. That they grew to just roll their eyes at, at his pronouncements of what he could deliver, but seemingly so weak. And it doesn't take much to start resonating with their motives. We can hear echoes of our pride, echoes of our critical spirit. If we're honest with it, we can see our face in their insecurity. We can see our face as they act out of fear. But these aren't just the feelings of one person against another person who's a threat. It's not simply fearing those who have control. What lies behind all of this is exposing our ongoing attitude towards God. You know, if we acknowledge that God exists, if we acknowledge God's presence, then we have to admit that he is the greatest threat out there. Because he is the one that controls all the things that we don't control. He's the one that actually could take away the things we are working so hard to build. He's the one that that produces the greatest threat to the things that we want to protect and save. And so we, like the crowds, we must reject him. We must overthrow his rule 
Now, some do this by, by actively despising him, shaking our fist at him, resenting him for the control that he has. But I'd probably say that most of us do it by passively ignoring him pretending in some way that if we don't pay attention to his existence in our life, if we don't pay attention to his authority, that will somehow weaken his call upon our life. Now, the first mistake that we could make here is listening to that Good Friday story and to think that we are not part of the crowd, to ignore our place at the cross. But the second thing the second mistake that we can make in listening to this story is seeing Jesus as an unwilling victim, a defeated martyr, someone who's done in by our actions. No, if you've heard Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you hear him even at the cross, you hear one who is willing, one who's willing to go forward, one who acts not as a victim of something done upon him, but one who acts according to his own plan, according to a plan that was set forth before all eternity. That Jesus gives himself over. And notice he's not giving himself up. He's giving himself over. He gives himself over, not haphazardly, not randomly, but he's giving himself over to specific things. He's giving himself over to specific sins. Allowing these sins to act upon him. He gives himself over to our desire to control. He gives himself over to our security, our desire and our thirst for security. He gives himself over to our anxiety. What are you anxious about? Frequently, we are anxious about the things that we don't control. We try to manipulate the world around us so that our plans can come about. We try to control all the variables in our life to avoid the things that scare us most. And Jesus comes in to that very source of our anxiety, and he pushes buttons. You see, Jesus' life was not one of placidly going by and letting sleeping dogs lie. No, Jesus came to start upsetting the status quo, provoking those he comes in contact with, pointing out sin. He doesn't come leaving well enough alone. He comes to disrupt our nice, calm plans for our future. And so he gives himself over to our anxiety and our desire for control. And so it's our desire for control that kills him. It's our anxiety that could not stand his presence that must silence him when he speaks words into our life. He gives himself over to it. He gives himself over to our judgmentalism. Our judgmentalism comes from this hatred inside us that that hates things that are different from us. And so we evaluate things according to what we value and what we despise. What do we value? What do we as a society value? We find ourselves among those around us valuing that, that that is strong and beautiful. We value those things that are successful and popular. And so we sit as sovereign judges and approve of those things. But Jesus comes into that, that very sin of judgmentalism, and he comes despised and rejected. Jesus comes not attractive. He comes weak and meager, and so we judge him. We judge him as not worthy Jesus gives himself over to our sin of judgmentalism. He gives himself over to our sin of arrogance. We're arrogant because we have convinced ourselves that we know what's right for our lives. 
We're arrogant because we think that we can live independently. And that given enough resources, given enough time, given the right situation, our plan for our life is what's best. Jesus comes into our sin of arrogance. And he comes in humility, even in humiliation, putting, ourself, putting himself lower than what we think we are. He comes without a home. And then when he makes claims to be king, we mock him, despising his claim. And so he gives himself over to our arrogance. The point of all this is that Jesus does this willingly. This is according to his plan. Do you see what he's doing to our sins? He doesn't draw back from our sins and from a distance condemn them because they're ugly. No, he gives himself over to them. He draws near to them. He enters into them. And he lets them crucify him. He lets those very sins that are part of us nail him to the cross. But in doing so, in doing so, he makes even those sins an instrument in the redemptive plan of God. For it is at the cross that the very thing that killed him is defeated. The very things that that condemn him, he forgives. You know, throughout that whole narrative, everyone that persecutes Jesus thinks they are controlling him. But he's the one in control. They think they're silencing him when they arrest him. But he turns our plans into his plan. Our control into his control. We think we're judging him. But he takes that condemnation we offer him and he judges us with a verdict of not guilty. He takes the nails that we use to fix him to the cross and he bends them to his purpose. He uses the very things that put him there for his redemptive purpose so that these nails are even bent and shaped, fashioned almost as if to a key that can unlock the shackles that have been binding us. At the cross, Jesus is rescuing us from ourselves. At the cross, he's preventing us from pulling the house down on ourselves, allowing us to experience true and redemptive love a love that we would never hope for or imagine on our own. You see, if he was simply a passive victim, that these scenes that we get carted out in front of us every Good Friday, at best, would just motivate us to to serve him out of guilt. But when we're motivated out of guilt, this guilt trip that can get offered by looking at his suffering, we will serve him but very subtly we will despise him. But Jesus is not a passive victim. This is all according to his plan. He is active. And knowing that he's active means that he knows your sin. He sees all of it. And he's not standing at a distance from it, but he draws close to it. He approaches it. He turns toward it, not away from it. We know that means that he won't simply overlook our sin, but actually do something about it. He goes to that cross because our our sins are killing us. And he goes to that cross to destroy our sin. And this means that we can come. This means that we can come to him honestly and openly knowing that because this was his plan, it was a plan from someone who loves us, who sought after us, who knew what was best for us, 
even against our own desires. This means we can come and confess all of our sin. We can begin to expose it. Expose it to to one who is like a surgeon, cutting out all the cancer. And all the more it calls for us to expose more and more of it, crying out to the one who, who loves us, deal with this. Don't let one remnant of this cancer survive in me. Get it all. It invites us not to respond and serve out of guilt, but to be drawn near to the one who loves us and one who can do something about our sin. We don't hide the hideousness of it from him, but expose it, putting it on this cross. He invites us to do that now. Let's do that. incredible invitation that we get to respond to now. And so you're welcome to use the kneeler to take some posture of humility as we get to come and discover more precisely, more particularly, the sins that Jesus took on. Keep in mind that wonderful invitation that we come not out of fear, not out of guilt, but knowing that Jesus redeemed these sins and we get to discover and be in awe of everything he did. Genuine repentance involves two things. The dying away of the old self and the coming to life of the new. The dying away of the old self is to be genuinely sorry for sin. To hate it more and more and to run away from it. The coming to life of the new is wholehearted joy in God through Christ and a delight to do every kind of good as God wants us to. Together as Christ's body, we now confess our sin and express our longing to live in joyful obedience to God. Peter preached to the people, saying, Repent, then, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Let us now lay our hearts before the Lord. Father, we confess our faith is weak. 
Your presence and promises are invisible to us. We doubt you. Because of our abiding doubts, we begin to believe that we have no other way to have peace than to secure it for ourselves. And so we have found other things and have served them all, living for them in hopes that we would reach that place of rest that only comes from salvation in your Son. More than that, we do not trust your promise of love enough to let go of our armfuls of idols or confront our broken habits of thinking and living. We are trapped by our fear of losing them, even though they have left us sick and unsatisfied. Help us. Help us to forsake all replacements of you and to turn our whole being towards you, letting no corner of our heart be off limits to your lordship, that we might completely repent and live a life of ongoing repentance and faith. Lord, we call out to you. Where else, where else would we go, Lord? We call out to you for mercy and new life. In Jesus' name. Sing. disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. 
Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then, you who are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Let's pray together. Father, I admit that I cannot see the future. Yet I constantly project a future onto my days, and I think that my sheer force of will can make it happen. I have my lists of things I think I need, and I obsess over seeing them get done. Or I position myself to have control over bringing it about. If I fail, or if my desires are delayed or frustrated, I can respond by anxiously trying to control others or trying to hide, deny, or self-medicate in any number of ways. If I get what I want, it only reinforces the illusion that I'm in control or I assume that I shouldn't encounter struggle and I'm surprised and leveled when trouble comes my way. Forgive me of my pride of control Only you have power over life. Help me to trust you in the midst of struggle and triumph as I rest in your provision of grace through Jesus Christ. You were dead in your trespasses. But he set them aside by nailing them to the cross. Let's take a moment and consider just what control and security and anxiety we seek apart from God, what he nailed. We can name it silently. We can name it out loud. But as we name it, know that it is losing its power in Christ. Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light.
He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eyes? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Let's continue in confession, thinking especially of our judgmentalness and our blindness. Let's pray together. Father, I admit that I cannot tell what is in another's heart and mind. I'm even so often blind to my own motivations. Yet I continually judge others based on my assumptions and rank others against my own notions of righteousness naming their motivations and condemning them in my heart. Please forgive my pride of judgmentalness and blindness. I use this as my own personal caste system to compete for approval and status. Help me to entrust others, myself to you, as the only righteous and compassionate judge of the heart. You were dead in your trespasses, but he set them aside by nailing them to the cross. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Then the Lord answered Job as the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors, when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come, and no further. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Here and I will speak. I will question you. And you make it known to me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself 
and repent in dust and ashes. Confessing our arrogance, let's pray. Father, I admit that I cannot understand why things are happening in the world or in my own life, but I am quick to come up with reasons for why things are hard in my life, or why I have been given success when others have failed, or what I must have in order to be at peace. Forgive me for my pride or arrogance. I don't know how the simplest mechanisms of creation were formed. I cannot begin to fathom your plan, the consequences of my sins or other sins, the natural weathering of time, or what measure Satan has been given to bring affliction and test my faith. Help me to look to you like the birds of the field for my security and sustenance, and to leave things undone and mysterious that are too high for my understanding. You were dead in your trespasses, but he set them aside by nailing them to the cross. confessed a lot. We haven't confessed enough, but we have confessed a lot. And I would encourage you even to take this home and let it lead you as you confess more and more and as you uncover your arrogance and your blindness and your judgmentalness. But what does God do in response? He doesn't leave us there. He doesn't leave us there, even though he should, even though we were dead. Hear this assurance. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You don't have to look into yourself for hope or for strength or for life. Look to Christ. He is your strength and your hope. So let's stand. Let's respond and sing. One of the great things we get to do is proclaim and sing of our great God. Yeah. 
When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. 